This podcast is available in video at fpcgulfport.org and fpcgulfport on YouTube. In the history of Israel and Judah, there were a lot of kings. Some of them were good. Some of these kings were good, wonderful, godly men that you'd like to invite over for dinner. Most of them, though, were bad. They were horrible, wicked, depraved individuals. Now, one of the things that these kings did, as we said, is that they turned the people's hearts away from the one true God. The worst thing you could do as a king of Israel or Judah is to take the people's hearts and redirect it towards the sun or the moon or the constellations or anything other than God himself. That's exactly what they did. The question is why? Well, the reason why they did such a thing, the reason why they did this, it was often political. If there was a foreign nation or an individual or a dignitary that worshipped such and such a god, you might move an altar in place so they could see that you were also on Team Baal or Team Asher or Molech or what have you. Now, when people worshipped a new god, they often brought in a new place. I mean, if Jehovah had a temple, but you wanted to worship something else, then what you did was you set up some sort of structure called a high place. As we said earlier, sometimes it was legitimately on a hill. In fact, oftentimes it was in a place of visibility high up that people had to travel. And the reason people put these things up high was because there was this idea that in order to approach God, you had to get a little altitude under you. The higher you got, the more likely he would be to hear you. So that's part of why they had high places. But other idols, they weren't worthy of making something on a hill. They just erected some rickety scaffolding and the like, and that's where they worshiped their God there. Now, none of this was new. This had been going on almost forever. If you were to go back to the book of Deuteronomy, If you were to go back and read the words of Moses, you'd see that this had been going on for some time. The pagan nations had always littered the countryside with high places devoted to the worship of false gods. God himself did not like them. He said this in Deuteronomy 12. He says, you shall utterly destroy them. When you encounter them, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, you shall break their sacred pillars, and you shall burn their wooden images with fire. What's the very first commandment? You don't have to shout it out, but think it through. What's the very first commandment? First commandment says this, you shall have no other gods but me. Now that seems pretty non-negotiable. If God says, hey, I've got ten commandments, and number one says this, don't have any other gods, it seems silly, stupid, sinful, that the people would go about and do just that. Now, it wasn't surprising that the Moabites did it. It wasn't surprising that the Ammonites did it. But it was downright wicked and abomination for the Israelites to do it. Because of their heritage, the one true God had come through for them time and time and time again. The one true God made them holy, distinct from all the other nations, even though they were but the smallest. He had called them out to himself, a special possession, a special heritage, sons and daughters. And yet, despite having that lofty position in the eyes of God, yet they turned their back on him and they turned to other things. Now, as we said before, sometimes the kings were so bad that they flat out led the people into overt apostasy. Other times, though, there were good kings who did good things. With that said, even the good kings for centuries, as much good as they might do, they left the high places standing. You had good kings for centuries who did good things and brought about good reforms. But while they might be willing to go 80% of the way, 90% of the way in fulfilling what God had commanded them to do, they consistently, regularly, habitually, perpetually left the high places standing. 
Listen to what 2 Kings 12 says about a good king named Jehoash. He says this, In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash became king. He reigned for 40 years in Jerusalem. Jehoash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days in which Jehoiada the high priest instructed him. But the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burnt incense on these high places. Now, lest you think that was an isolated case, listen to this. Two chapters later, 2 Kings 14. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. However, uh-oh, however, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense there. This is like an epitaph. A eulogy given for these kings it says, you know, this king was good. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord for 29 years, but, but he didn't do the one thing, the one thing that God had called every king before him to do. He passed the buck to another generation. This happens time and time again. I'll read one more. There's multiple examples. Let me read one more. 2 Kings 15. Jotham. Jotham was 25 years old and he became king. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However... The high places were not removed, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense there. Are you detecting a theme? The worst kings, the bad kings, they just did wicked things. But even the good kings would do like 90% of what God wanted them to do. But stamped at the final line of their eulogy time and time and time again was this. However, they did not take down the high places, and so the people still went there to worship. The good kings left the high places intact. Even the good kings were unwilling to do all that they were supposed to do. Men like Jehoash, Amaziah, they may have been righteous in 90% of their rule, but in this one really important area, it's like they hit a wall. They stopped and they didn't follow through. So time and time again, the Bible said they did what was right in God's eyes, except that the high places were not removed. If you are a Christian this morning, I would imagine that you have gone a long way down the road of sanctification. I would imagine that if you're a Christian this morning, especially if you have a testimony going back 16 years, 29 years, however many years it is, I would imagine you have a long road of sanctification behind it. I imagine there's all sorts of progress that has been made in your own life. With that said, let me ask you this. What is your high place? What are your high places? I've done this long enough to know that they are there. What are your high places? You've come a long way in your faith. You've made a lot of progress. You've been sanctified in a great many ways. And yet, the end closer for many of us than the beginning. There is an epitaph coming. What will it say? Well, it say this individual went 80% of the way, 90% of the way, but he would not take down his high place. What sins are you allowing to stand? What are you going to do about it? Well, let's look and see a little bit more about what the king did about it in 2 Kings 23. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. As we usually do, we'll just work our way through the text. Verse 1. Now the king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the house of the Lord. All right. At the start of today's passage, we're introduced to a new king. Virtually every other paragraph in the book of Kings introduces you to a new king. Here it's Josiah. Now what do we know about Josiah? Well, Josiah was a king who ruled in Judah around the year 640 B.C. And compared to some of his predecessors, he was an excellent king. Now what did he do that was so excellent? 
Well, among other things, the king had looked around the temple and the grounds, and he had seen how run down everything had gotten, and so he was determined to effect repairs to God's house. And so that's just what they did. Now, as those repairs were being carried out, they found something. The builders, the architects, the foremen, they discovered something there. They discovered the book of the law. Now, it would appear that the laws of God had been sidelined for some period of time. If you take God's word out of the hearing or reading of God's people, God's people will go astray. If you introduce God's word, the book of the law, to the hearing of God's people, then ideally they will be inclined to obey and to follow it. With that said, during the course of the years leading up to this text, God's word had departed. And so reintroducing the word of God, the book of the law, to the people and to the king, it had a significant effect. Josiah had this text, the book of the law, read in his hearing. And after he read it, he was just astonished. He tore his clothes. He said, oh my goodness, the things that this book says that we're not doing, the things that it tells us about God that we're not obeying. Josiah was convicted. He knew this isn't right. He knew that God was forefathers had given him everything people had, and yet they had turned their back on him. And so he tore his clothes and he said, we can do better. We can do better. In verses 1 and 2, we see that the first course of action he did after that event, after finding the book, having it read, becoming convicted, the first thing that he did was that he sent to gather all the people, small, great, the leaders, everyone, the elders, every priest and prophet, every person with ears to hear. He says, you all come on in. We're going to be talking about these things. And they proceeded to read God's word in their midst. Let's see what he does next in verses 3 and 4. Then the king stood by a pillar, and he made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest, the priests of the second order, and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the articles that were made for Baal and for Asherah in the temple the people, it's not like they just took things for a bale and ashram and just like set it on the outside, you know, put it on the front porch of the temple. They took this stuff inside, and he says, all right, everybody out of the pool, this is going to stop now. So the king commanded Elkai and the priest to bring out of the temple lord all the articles that were made for Baal and for Asher and for the whole host of heaven, and he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and he carried their ashes to Bethel. All right. Let's recap these first four verses. Verse 1 and 2, Josiah reads the book, reads the book of the law, reads it before the people, and in verses 3 and 4, he and all the people, they promised to do what the book has said. They made a covenant with their God. And that covenant would be significant because it meant that their entire society would need to be reordered. Their entire society would need to be modified and and changed and reordered as a result of the decisions that they were were making. They'd have to get rid of the shrines and the high places and the altars and all these things. This was not a small thing to do because they were everywhere. I guarantee you, if they were in the temple, they were everywhere in this society. So it was going to take a lot of work to do that. Now, this work involved taking everything out, particularly from the temple, and then burning it just burning it and spreading its ashes. You know, I once counseled a man who was into pornography, and one day he felt somewhat convicted by his sin, so he went home and he took his stash and he went out in the garage and he threw it away. He threw it into the trash. However, guess what he did the next day? The very next day he was tempted, and so he went back out to the trash, and he took what he found there and he brought it back inside. Now, alternately, 
Burning something removes the possibility that it will come back into one's life. Burning something, which is what Josiah said we're going to do, had the net effect of taking that which is wicked, that which is gross, that which is undesirable and pagan and evil and the like, and completely and forever removing it. You burn something, it's not coming back. You burn something, it's not going to return into your house. And so that's exactly what he did. He says, we are going to burn it all. Let's see what it does in verses 5 through 9. Verse 5, then he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense on the high places in the cities of Judah and in all the places around Jerusalem. Those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, to the moon, to the constellations, and to the host of heaven. Then he brought out the wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron outside Jerusalem, and he burned it at the brook. He ground it to ashes, and he threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. Then he tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the wooden image. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah, and he defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense. From Geba to Beersheba, he also broke down the high places at the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were to the left of the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. You know, we believe in something called Reformed theology. We don't believe in it just because it's Reformed, but because we believe it's biblical. This concept of Reformation has at least two objects. Number one, you have to reform your practices. Reformation involves changing what you were doing. If you were doing something wrong one day, something evil, ungodly, pagan, wicked, or even just confused or misguided, you say, hey, no more. You change your practices. That's the first thing that needs to change, or at least one of the two things that needs to change. The other thing that needs to change is the hearts of the people. You can't have one out of the two. You can't simply reform practices apart from hearts, and you can't reform hearts apart from practices. They both need to be modified. In these verses, verses 5 through 9, Josiah is intent on doing both. He's intent on changing the practices, on burning down the high places, on defiling that which is pagan so it couldn't be used any longer. And he's also intent on changing the hearts of the people. He says, we've got these goofs, it's a nice word I can come up with, these terrible, terrible priests, these terrible priests doing these wicked things, out they go. They are gone. Get us in some guys who love the Lord and will lead people towards him. So this is the nature of the Reformation. He changed practices and he was intent on changing the hearts of the people. Now verses 5 through 9, you'll notice he doesn't mess around. He didn't mess around one iota. In fact, the king's reforms, they were intentionally public, intentionally strong, intentionally dramatic, so that no one would miss the point. He removed the priests. He burned the idols. He burns idols, right? In some cases, he threw them into the river, and they just got distributed everywhere. In other cases, he took ashes of the idols, and although they could never be reassembled, he says, you know what? To make a point to everyone how bad and wicked and evil these idols were, he scoops up the ashes, they go out to the grave sites, and they start scattering them on the graves. Why do you think he did that? Why do you think they did that? Well, throwing the ashes on people's graves, it was not meant to defile the graves. It was meant to defile the ashes. If you remember, Old Testament Israel, dead bodies were considered ceremonially unclean. If you touched a body or a carcass or what have you, there was a whole purification ritual that you had to do. Dead bodies were considered very, very unclean. And so what does he do here? He takes the ashes and he sprinkles them on the graves, not to defile the graves, but to defile the ashes. This is like adding the most visible exclamation point that he could 
to the action that he was undertaking. There's a lot more we could look at in verses 5 through 9. Let me add on verses 10 through 14, and we'll continue. Verse 10, then he defiled Topath. He defiled Topath, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech. Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the officer who was in the court, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. The altars that were on the roof, the upper chambers of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke them down and pulverized them there and threw their dust into the brook Kidron. Then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, that were on the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the abomination of the Moabites, for Milcom, the abomination of the people of Ammon. He broke the pieces of the sacred pillars, he cut down the wooden images, and he filled their places with the bones of men. Once again, it does not look like Josiah messed around. In fact, it was almost ruthless in his zeal for God's kingdom. He not only destroyed the pagan altars, but again, it regularly says he defiled them. He had things done to these altars that would assure no one ever saw them as holy again. He defiled things, he pulverized things, he burned things. He took that which was evil in his day and in his age, and he crushed it in his hand in a way that the entire nation saw. And they knew that there would be no more. And he did it again in such a way that none of these things could be reassembled or reused. Some of us, when we're sanctifying our own sin, we'll go so far, but we don't actually burn the idols. We don't get rid of in such a way that we can never return to us those things which, which are pagan. You know, as, as Christians, you have to deal with sin as aggressively as Josiah dealt with these idols. It might take different forms. There's nuance here. I understand that. And yet, if you don't share his zeal to put to death that which is wicked and evil and does not belong in your flesh, then you're accommodating it, which is what the people had done for centuries. Josiah wasn't going to let his people be tempted anymore by the existence of these things. If you make peace with that which tempts you, don't be surprised when it does. Josiah says no more. So he removed that temptation as forcefully and clearly as he could. Let me stop for a second. Let's consider an interesting question. Do you think he went too far? In 2 Kings 23, Josiah seems pretty worked up. He seems pretty excitable about these issues of worship and holiness and reverence and the temple and the like. But do you think he took things too far? Do you think he took things too far? Did he just need to have you know, a chill pill? relax, decide, just need to kind of, it's five o'clock somewhere, just kind of take it easy for a bit? Let me ask you another way. Would Jesus, would gentle Jesus have gotten this worked up about this sort of thing? Yes. John 2, we read of the time that Jesus went to the temple at Passover. And this is what happened. And Jesus found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. Now when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. And the sheep and the oxen, he poured out the changers' money, and he overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered what was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. Zeal for your house has consumed me. I think Jesus and Josiah would have gotten along just fine. I think Jesus and Josiah shared a respect for the glory of God, for the holiness, the reverence, and all the things that were supposed to be part of temple worship. 
They were also offended by the same thing. When that which is pagan came in to that which is holy. You don't see Jesus angry very often. I'll grant you that. But when he was angry, what was he angry about? When that which was pagan came into that which is holy. Let me ask you another question. Let's say that you take the two modern spheres of the church and the world. The church and the world. And let's say for the sake of argument that these things represent polar opposites. Scripturally they do. So here's the question. If that is true, even in our day, if the world and the church are opposites, in your own lifetime, has the world become more like the church or has the church become more like the world? Are holy beliefs and practices leavening our culture or are the practices of the culture increasingly leavening the church? You know the answer to that. In many ways, the greater evangelical world has welcomed in that which it ought not, that which is not good and holy and reverent and appropriate. In fact, some of the worst things in Josiah's day, if you were to look at this passage and say, all right, what was the worst thing that the people were doing? Let's say you said, all right, I read verses 1 through 14. If I had to pick out the one thing in this text that the people were doing that was the most egregious, the most wicked, what do you think you saw in verses 1 through 14 that was as bad as anything else? Well, Let me answer that question. In verse 10 of today's passage, we see that Josiah, he halted the pagan practice of infanticide. In verse 10, we see that Josiah stopped the pagan practice of killing children. He defiled Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire to Molech. In his day and in the centuries preceding them, young children were sacrificed here at Topeth to the pagan god Molech, at least until Josiah came calling. Until Josiah came calling and he put an end to this horrible practice. In our own day, Molech might be gone, but the abortion mills remain. The abortion mills remain, and there are whole denominations that actively support them. Do not for a moment think that the evils of the Old Testament are gone. They've just taken on different forms. I still need godly men and women to stand up and oppose these things. All right, given that we're running low on time, let's look to wrap things up. At the outset of this morning's study, we noted that Judah had a number of good kings over the years. However, as good as they may have been, they had been unwilling to do what Josiah did. They had been unwilling to deal with the high places, at least until Josiah came to the throne. Now, these high places represented the sins that the kings just couldn't bring themselves to deal with. With that said, let me return to the question I asked of us here this morning, as a believer, as a Christian, as someone you probably look in the mirror and say, that's a good individual. Let me ask you this. What is your high place? What is your high place? What what sin remains? What sin remains? What appetite? What attitude have you been unwilling to put to death in your own walk? What temptation have you been unwilling to turn from even though you know you should? Even though you're in here in church this morning, what thing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday are you unwilling to put down, to remove from your life? Earlier this morning, I referenced the sin of pornography. Statistically speaking, there's people within the, within the sound of my voice who may be trying hard in some areas of their life, and yet, and yet have been unwilling to put this issue to death. I wonder... Is that you? Is it a loved one? King Josiah deliberately defiled the sinful places. However, pornography is a sin that may be defiling you or your loved one or your marriage bed. If that's your high place, burn it. Burn it to the ground. Go home. Take action. Get rid of such things, those things that are poisoning your heart, your soul, your marriage. For others of us this morning, our high place may be different. For some, it may be filthy speech. 
the hostile way that we talk to others. For some of us, it may be unnatural attractions. For some, it may be pride. For some, it may be narcissism or a hardened heart that hates others. Speaking of hating others, some have troubles with racism. For some of us, a dislike or disdain for people that are different than us is a vile scarlet stain on our testimony. For some of us, it may be a high place that needs to go down. God loves you. He does not want you to hate your brother. If God loves you, he's not going to let you keep perpetrating any of these things or the next hundred I could list. Any sort of attitude, appetite, or affection that is sinful and unchristlike must be put down. Here's the thing. You already know that. You already know that. The kings of the Old Testament, they knew this. The kings of the Old Testament knew what was expected of them. They knew that God hated the high places. They knew that these things should have been burned to the ground, and yet they didn't. They went to their graves with this sad, unfortunate epitaph. They would not do it. They did this, this, and the other thing. They did all sorts of things. They were righteous in the eyes of God and their men in so many ways. And yet, the final line in their eulogy says this. They left the high places standing. This morning, whatever your high place is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? What's going to be the final line in your story, in your epitaph? Whatever your high place is, it's time to burn it down. It's time to remove it. Start today. Let's pray. If you'd like to check out additional recordings or videos by Dr. Toby Holt, please visit our website at fpcgulfport.org. And if you're on the Gulf Coast, come join us at 11 a.m. Sundays at First Presbyterian Church of Gulfport, Mississippi.